Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I'm joined by Sam Raby, Assistant Children and Young People's Coordinator at First Steps ED. First Steps is an eating disorder charity based in the Midlands which provides care and support for individuals affected by eating disorders. Sam is also the Boys and Men's Lead at First Steps where he has demonstrated his passion for raising awareness of male mental health, particularly OCD in which he has personal experience. Hello Sam! Hello Hannah, are you okay? Yeah I'm good thank you, how are you doing today? Yeah. I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm not too bad. Yeah, you've got a very nice hoodie on there, I see. Yeah, you've got a <laughs> you've got to respect the brand, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Just for everybody listening, Sam has got his lovely yellow full of beans hoodie on today, and I've got my lovely yellow top on. So we are very on brand, which is amazing. We are indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. I'm really interested to talk to you. We've had That's a lot okay. of conversations in the past, um, yeah. become really good friends, which has been really lovely. It's been so 100%. nice to get to know you while I've been working with First Steps and stuff. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you was, how did you get into working with people with eating disorders? Um, when I was about 10 years old, we had experience so one of my family members was diagnosed with anorexia okay which was obviously very difficult and as a 10 year old especially it just didn't really make sense to me mm. it was not something I'd ever had exposure to it's never it wasn't ever something that I'd heard about um, and obviously asking my parents and you know other family members and um, and stuff like that I just wanted to understand what was going on mm. I wanted to help I'm just that type of person so that's kind of where my using the term interest yeah. loosely there came about and then it kind of just developed there. obviously I started learning more um, as I becoming interested and then when obviously I was at university I decided to do my undergrad dissertation on a using a non-clinical sample of eating difficulties okay and um, which which was really really interesting and then a volunteering position came up at First Steps, an organisation that I'd heard of but not really knew the kind of everything of what they do. Yeah. And then obviously I started there, so I became a volunteer at our all ages group. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I still I still take part in the group now, um, and it kind of just started from there really in terms of actually working. But my interest goes back near enough like fourteen years now. Wow. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting what you said about like your family member being diagnosed with an eating disorder and then just being yeah. like nobody really had no, any idea what it is because I think yeah. that's it's so common um, mm -hmm. and I think that's maybe one thing that I don't know whether I, I don't know whether it's lacking or there mm -hmm. just needs to be more of in that like there's support there for the immediate family I guess mm -hmm. but then yeah. you know just you know mums dads that's really great but it's just getting that education out to everybody mm -hmm. yeah and especially like for me at 10 and it, and even like other family members that were a lot older than me still had kind of no idea yeah basing it on maybe particular stereotypes or a little bit of education that they'd had um but yeah I kind of went on my own quest to find out what what was going on trying to save the world as, um, <laughs> um, well, as I think you're doing a good job yeah that's where my journey started I guess yeah and so what do first steps do if people haven't heard of first steps so we are a eating disorders charity um that well sorry mental health charity that specialize in eating disorders okay. and eating difficulties and um, so we support 
both young people from 5 to 17 and adults as well with any kind of eating difficulty so mm. you don't have to have a diagnosed eating disorder it can be just eating difficulties um, yeah. anxieties around food body image etc and we, we we provide that support that maybe for those individuals that maybe can't get access to support through the NHS um, but also we offer support as we as we've just been talking about to parents and carers to siblings of those with an eating disorder or yeah. eating difficulties which we think is really really important um, yeah. yeah and we offer various different kind of support options to those um, to those people so when I say we support basically everyone <laughs> within a certain extent yeah, yeah that's kind of the case I think um I don't know who I was talking to but I remember I was speaking to one of your colleagues I think it was a few months ago now and they basically summed up that you know it doesn't matter who you are what you're struggling with if you mm -hmm. feel like you're struggling with your eating you deserve mm -hmm. help and I 100%. just I loved that because I think We've got so many ideas nowadays of like having a specific eating disorder or, you mm -hmm. know, getting that diagnosis, which I think can be helpful in terms of kind of knowing what's going on and yeah. then helping people. But ultimately, if you are having a bad experience with food or your body or whatever, you're having a problem. So you need that help. Yeah. And, and so many people will say to us that like... I'm not as bad as other people yeah. and it's kind of that almost I wouldn't call it shame it's just kind of guilt for taking up services yeah because they don't they haven't got what the media or people think as a diagnosable eating disorder yeah. they just have some issues or anxiety around food that can that is that is very common as you say so it's really good to be able to support those kind of people that fall through the gap yeah absolutely. kind of support that can't get support elsewhere in NHS services etc yeah. yeah I see you guys as kind of like that bridge and I think that's I think we need yeah. so much more of that I yeah. think it's so important yeah um and as a kind of prevention thing so people will hopefully come to us so they don't need NHS services in the yeah um in the future or like especially within moral and CYP we have a really good relationship with the CAMS team especially in Derbyshire the CAMS, the CAMS eating disorder team and it's kind of that step up, step down approach. Yeah. So we are there. And if we need to escalate to them, we can do. But more importantly, we can offer support to like to young people that have been with them and that need that kind of extra support. So they're not just, well, you're disengaged from us now. Yeah. From the eating disorder team. And that's it. Yeah. They can have that longer process. And, and hopefully that gives them a better chance going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think just having that support, like you've said, maybe you don't need that intense support anymore, but just having mm -hmm. something so that you're still, you know, keeping on track with recovery and stuff. I think yeah. that's super important. Yeah. So your role as boys as men's lead, which okay. yeah, super important, I think, especially with, you know, there's been a lot, I think it was men's mental health week a few weeks ago. There's been a mm -hmm. lot of about, you know, talking more about men's mental health so what does your role entail um so so firstly before before i talk about role, i think that probably around two years ago now we decided at first steps that uh, that boys and men was going to be a priority for us and mm -hmm. um, it it wasn't something especially at that time that was kind of looked at elsewhere and um, so we thought that we would take the initiative and say okay well we're going to make this a priority now yeah. Um, because of what we were seeing and what everyone else was seeing as well. Um, so that was probably about two years ago. Then we created my role. And basically what I do is oversee everything to do with boys and men at first steps, mm -hmm. which is really cool for me because it, some days it could be looking at service delivery. So how we can, is there a particular area within boys and men that we're missing? So is it that we create a, a boys and men only group? Yeah. Or is it, or then the next day could be, okay, how can we look at our social media and marketing strategy to make it more appealing to boys yeah. and men, basically? And it can be as varied as that. Um, and obviously to everyone that kind of that identifies as male that uses our service is under, I oversee all that, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you do sort of projects? Is there like stuff that you've been doing to sort of, I guess, raise awareness around male mental health? Yeah, so um, one of our really um, successful campaigns was we did for Eating Disorders Awareness Week. 
just before the world ended last March, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we did our kind of um, our theme, our topic was boys and men, which which was really really good. So we decided that we would share share personal experience, which I think mm. is so so valuable. Yeah. Um, because stats are great, but unless you hear those stories and actually how it can differ, um, we shared research because obviously we wanted to appeal to every kind of person and, and, and we did different events spreading the word and we did like a poster campaign which was really cool and it was basically saying why does um like why do all why why should we consider male uh, like men and boys within the eating disorder mm-hmm. world and everyone would write their own so it was like my brother has an eating disorder or any, yeah um that kind of stuff um, so, so that was really, really successful. Within the last 18 months, we've also put together a boys and men only CPD. Mm-hmm. So obviously uh, boys and men in um, like EDs in boys and men, which has been really, really good. Um, I was delivering that training and now it's been handed over to, to another member of staff. But that that was really good. And we had a lot of good feedback from that. Um, comments often being like, oh, I didn't know this. This was a problem. This was a thing. Yeah which is sad to hear but also okay well th- this is why we're doing this yeah and it and it's really really important that we've been able to get those people in that have those opinions and those those thoughts around it rather than just people that know that it, it that it's an issue yeah. yeah and i think this is something that's definitely been on like at the forefront of my mind recently is that a lot of the time, I think the people that maybe are already interested in eating disorders, it's absolutely great that they're raising awareness and talking about things. But it's then when you go out into, you know, a random friendship group or you speak to, you know, the other day I was speaking to one of um, a family friend and um, I was talking about some of the work that I'm doing through Full of Beans. And mm-hmm. um, he was like, what, men get eating disorders? And I was almost like, I didn't know how to respond because he was so like dead set that it was a female Mm. issue. And I was Mm -hmm. almost like, you know, I I wasn't angry in the slightest, but like part of me deep down was like, how could you think that? But then equally like that view has only come from what he's seen in the media or sort of what he knows. Yeah. And then you think- stereotypical. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the things, like, especially within the last 18 uh, to 24 months is that like, when I talk about the work that I do with friends, family, it's that kind of shock that you say, like, do you work with people that aren't diagnosed with anorexia? So maybe like people that binge eat and have binge eating disorders. Um, it's that sh- even not just with boys and men, but just that kind of very stereotypical that everyone yeah. with an eating disorder is young, female, and white. Yeah. And and kind of I I kind of love educating them and being like, you're so so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> In obviously the nicest way possible. Yeah. Um, no, but I think that's a really interesting point to talk about because I think often having that conversation with someone can be really difficult. I think sometimes mm. you can sometimes you can come a bit confrontational um, when you're not meaning to be at all, but especially, you know, both of us work in this kind of area. We're very passionate yeah. about it. So yeah. how do you have that conversation with somebody to say, like, it isn't just, you know, the stereotype that you have without making them feel bad, but also kind of trying to educate them properly? Yeah. Um, I think... I mean, it is difficult, especially because, like you say, they've had such a long period of time thinking a certain way. And their opinion doesn't necessarily hurt anybody, but it does, you know, especially for, for guys like us, we know that, that, is, that their opinion is, is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think exposure is the biggest thing. So like sharing stories, sharing experiences, not just saying that, like stats and stuff, because that's not personable like yeah that that to a lot of people especially those that don't work in academia etc it doesn't necessarily mean much to them it just I think whenever if I'm ever in a debate with somebody and they just like spurt some stats out I'm like I'm off like yeah that's me done I'm out like I mean to be honest to a certain extent it's it's the same with me as well because like as a psychology grad any stats 
I know aren't always what they seem. So I'm always <laughs> like, I could probably critique that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, I mean, conversa- those difficult conversations are needed. Mm-hmm. And we are getting better. Um, we, we are getting better. Yeah. Um, especially with, I don't know whether you watched the Freddie Flintoff documentary that came out. Yes. Um, which was, so growing up, he was my hero. Really? I played cricket growing up. So <laughs> when he came out with an eating disorder and was passionate about helping, like 13-year-old me was very emotional at the time. <laughs> um, and I think especially because someone like him who is seen as a very a man's man, as a lot of people might call it, and a yeah. very masculine man. Yeah. Um, it's not just about men coming out and speaking, but also people... You know, it's like, it's not just, if you're a man, you're a certain type of, like, literally anybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, think, so that, as well, being a professional sports star and talking about how that kind of affected him with his eating disorder, I, I think that, that that was also really powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's getting people that just completely go against the stereotype. Um, mm-hmm. Like, everybody talking about their experience, obviously, is, like, really important. And I think being able to share that personally that does that helps somebody a lot in their recovery but equally mm-hmm. having people you know like Freddie Flintoff that you know um, and just to say as well the Freddie Flintoff documentary Aiden who was the first ever episode we did he is on that documentary yeah. um yeah. and I think Aiden was another you know another fantastic example of somebody that you know, if you met him in the street you would not think he was mm-hmm. he had struggled with an eating disorder and that's why I think things like that are so important for people yeah. like that to come, you know, share their story yeah. because then it means that other people then feel comfortable and think, oh, it's 100%. not something I need to be ashamed of. And it, and it's about that kind of representation about you look at someone, you know, in in sport and whether like young kids can't find someone that looks like them. It's exactly the same type of thing here. Yeah. Like pe- hopefully that documentary inspired a lot of a lot of people. Obviously, especially lads, to look at someone and say, I'm. I can relate to him as in himself, not necessarily sport wise, but you know, and, and it can happen to literally anybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, breaking down the kind of stigma and the myths that people have about eating disorders is something that I take quite a lot of pride in and being like, you, you, you know, not that I like telling people they're wrong, but <laughs> at all. But especially since working at First Steps, I've had literally every occupation in the sun. Mm. So doctors nurses literally everything and no one would expect it so when I tell people that they're a bit like taken back and like oh really like quite surprised and yeah. like it does happen they're not they're not you know it doesn't discriminate for, with anybody you know no. and I think that's the biggest thing I love that that eating disorders do not discriminate and I think no, we've kind of touched on this a little bit and mm-hmm. I know that you were questionable about the wording um <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, yeah, for you personally, why you think it is so important to speak about male mental health, and okay. <laughs> yeah, um, so my answer to that is why isn't it important? Yeah, it's just as important as every everybody else's mental health. It, um, like I touched on before, it is something that we're getting better with. We're nowhere near. I mean, I I wouldn't say that we're completely okay with mental health in general, let alone. No male mental health as well but just um especially around kind of boys and men in eating disorders and why that's important to talk about this and why we're kind of shouting from the rooftops about this um i know we talked about stats but i do have a really interesting stat for you (laughs) i promise not Um, to switch off (laughs) (laughs) um the between 2010 and 2018 the the prevalence of eating disorders in um in young men in hospital has increased by nearly 100 percent Wow. Growing at a faster rate for boys than girls. And obviously we could talk all day about what the kind of behind that and why we think that. Is it because it's becoming more, less stigmatised to ask for help to talk about it? Let's hope so. Let's hope that's the reason. You know, and and also this this one shocked me. And especially within eating disorders, you think that you know quite a lot. And then another stat will come out. Yeah. um, That men have to wait 28, um, around 20, on average 28 weeks. Um, as opposed to 10 for to gain a referral to an eating disorder service. Wow. Yeah, which I think goes with what we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of how 
it is it kind of manifests itself in men a little bit differently mm-hmm. so for instance maybe like um a a male that is using the gym etc that in society is seen as that, well that guy's going to the gym five yeah. six days a week for three hours oh my god he's amazing i wish i was like him yeah but underneath you know we know that that's a sign of something you know that something is wrong there and these are kind of the reasons why like i said why we are shouting from the rooftops about how important this is and why we need to talk about it because these stats aren't it's not just showing that it's a problem it's a serious problem yeah and that there is massive discrepancies between you know 28 weeks it's not 15 weeks as opposed to 10 weeks it's 28 as opposed to 10 yeah almost three times yeah which... um which we which we both know within the eating sort of world can be things can change very quickly for a lot well, of people well that's over half a year isn't it like yeah. i think when you put it like that is yeah and i um, think it actually highlights quite an important point because you know obviously like i think a lot of research has been done in women when it comes to the presentations of eating disorders but even more so, and I know this is kind of off topic, but I think it's still important, is it, it's, well, it's not off topic, but most of the research is done in anorexia. So mm-hmm. not only, you know, are men not being identified as having an eating disorder, because like you said, it could present completely differently. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to note as well that it, it could present in exactly the same way. And I don't think that we want to get stuck in a an idea that, eating disorders do present differently in men for Mm -hmm. many they might but I think also it's just like the overall general concept of unfortunately and this is what makes it so difficult eating Mm -hmm. disorders present differently in everybody yeah 100 percent. and I think and I think as well the thing that I took from took from that is that as well because of the stigma that is that is attached to eating disorders in, in boys and men as well is that often when they do reach out for help, especially to a GP. Often th- that that GP is probably the first or one of very few people that they've ever told. Yeah. And that could be like, um, we, we've got a, um, we helped with a training tool for GPs around boys and men and disorders. Oh, wow. We, yeah, we partnered with the University of Nottingham. Um, I can show you that another time if you want to yeah, see that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and basically in the video, it talks about how it's 10 minutes of the GP's time but for that person, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be so many, like 10, 15 yeah. years of thinking about this issue to be maybe referred into more physical health rather than to a need disorder service. Yeah. Um, and obviously they get sent to various different departments. And because of their often reluctance to speak anyway, how many of them just think, you know what, it's not worth it anymore? No. because they're not getting the help and they've reached out so they associate reaching out as not getting the help so they'd rather maybe not be let down if that's how they feel yeah um which is really sad yeah it is and i think it's i've unfortunately heard it quite a lot in that people will go to the doctor and say i'm presenting with symptoms of an eating disorder it's almost as though they will try and go through every other thing that could potentially be wrong before yeah. you're then provided that support Yeah. because you don't present in that stereotypical way. Yeah. And then, you know, like, like we've just said, you might be, let's yeah. say you've waited 28 weeks to get your referral, mm-hmm. you know, during that time, it could have been so much shorter if you know you best kind of mm-hmm. thing you know if you're struggling with you know the eating disorder behaviors and stuff so yeah and I think the again the important thing to highlight here is that it's not actually the GP's fault it's it's the education that they're provided Mm -hmm. and that needs to improve and I think a lot of people are working on providing training tools and all of that which is absolutely fantastic Mm -hmm. um and you know it's it's a real good step in the right direction yeah I mean it's um it's something that first steps have first steps have been doing for quite a while now and we do quite often have invite gps in and do training and and stuff and i think a lot of our staff are quite surprised Mm. um i guess we we assume that gps and doctors have their fountain of all knowledge and they know absolutely everything about everything Um, and and unfortunately especially in the insult world they don't and obviously we know that the kind of consequences that that come from that which, as you say, is more of an issue around the lack of training and awareness 
rather than the actual GP's fault because they can't be expected to know everything about it. Well, exactly. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to know literally every disease that possibly exists like yeah. can't be expected to have yeah. like you know endless knowledge but I suppose it's just giving like providing a resource that they'd be able to refer yeah. to that means you know there isn't that extensive um waiting time for people so they can get the help that they need when 100%. they need it 100%. Yeah. yeah so the next thing I wanted to talk to you about um yeah. I guess was what inspired you to to work I guess you're not in specifically male mental health, you're you're in a realm that covers a lot of different mental health. But I think, yeah, to share your personal experience, if that's something that you're comfortable doing. Yeah, 100%. Um, so my mental health journey has been um, an interesting one. Um, I was I was always kind of, as a kid, referred to as a worrier, someone who's quite sensitive. Mm-hmm. I was given those labels quite early on, and one of the things that I really struggled with it is it probably went it was happening for a lot longer than I probably thought it was um and as <laughs> especially in the early days because my <clears throat> my mom and dad bless them are both um they work for the ambulance service they're both paramedics mm-hmm. at at that time what they knew in relation to what they see at work was totally different. So because they see the emergency mental health of very yeah. severe mental health, I think that had an impact on what they saw in the nicest possible way they saw it as it's it's your age, it's okay, it's mm-hmm. just normal teenage anxiety stuff. Whereas in my head, I was going through the worst time that I could ever go through. Mm. Um, so so, so that, did, that did kind of play on it. Um, so then when I was 16, I was diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder and OCD. Um, I, I, I was always one of them people that I wanted to know what was going on. I'm a very black and white thinker. Um, and I was like, well, w- once I know what is going wrong or what is what the matter is, I guess, I can do something about it and I can help myself mm-hmm. um, and stuff. Um, I went through the CAM system. I had um, CBT with CAMs. Um, and my experience was I just kept kind of getting told that my issues were were, um, were anxiety-based. Okay. And I felt quite difficult with that because I actually said to my counsellor, I was like, if you went to the doctors with a rash on, a rash on your arm and the GP was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's some kind of rash, you'd be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I could have told you that. And that's how I kind of felt. So I went and had an appointment with the psychiatrist and then I got... I got my diagnosis then, which was a really strange thing because I wasn't expecting the OCD diagnosis. Mm. I'd not really heard of it. I didn't know what it was until obviously that. And I've spent the last, well, since I was 16, I'm 24 now, kind of on a journey of like, what is my OCD and what isn't? And the only way I can describe it for me is that my brain moves at 100 miles an hour all the time. (laughs) Um, And that, the kind of support that I got both from, my friends and family, especially my mum and dad, they've been incredible throughout this whole thing. I've wanted to always, not necessarily give back, but give, especially kids, like that's kind of where my passion lies in kids' mm-hmm. mental health. I've wanted to give them the the kind of help that I got and give them the best experience they can because I think it's very, it's really, really important. And the kind of, the interventions that I got, not even necessarily mental health kind of related, but like when I went to university at 18 it came at the right time and my diagnosis came at the right time so I feel like I'm quite lucky in terms of like everything that happened happened at the right time that has enabled me to be where I am today mm. um, and don't get me wrong it, it was at times it was very very difficult um, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody but I'd like to use my experience and use my expertise etc to kind of I guess give back but yeah. give people that positive experience because I know exactly what they're going through to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that's so nice that you're able to look at it with that sort of um, opinion. And often, I think, sometimes we can go through really difficult things, but then when we come out of the other side, it, it does give you so much experience, so much knowledge, that you are then able to give back and help other people. And I always think that about, you know, doing this podcast and mm-hmm. my now career, like... If I hadn't experienced an eating disorder, as awful as it was, I wouldn't be here. Maybe I'd have found something else that I was passionate about. But, you know, I think 
having that experience and going through that really does give you something else. But I kind of wanted to ask you about um, the like OCD, if that was okay, because I think there's a lot of Mm -hmm. misconceptions. I think often, I don't know whether it's just because I'm in the eating disorder kind of awareness realm, but I would say that there's even less sort of understanding and awareness about OCD in my life anyway and yeah. you know you often hear people say like oh god I'm so OCD about that or whatever yeah I'm guessing <laughs> I know what the answer is but I'm assuming that's not necessarily what it actually is no not no. no. yeah so OCD is often used as a as a describing word mm-hmm. r- rather than a very serious psychiatric illness and obviously people think a little bit like people on the spectrum they say that everyone's a little bit autistic, the same with everyone's a little bit OCD about things. Yeah, and also the stereotype of that it's all about cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I've had people say to me that they wish they had OCD, so or they wish their, somewhat, like their partner or someone they knew had, had OCD so their house would be a little bit tidier. And I've also had people say to me that, well, obviously, looking at the state of your bedroom, you obviously don't have have OCD, that kind of stuff. Yeah, which which is really tough, which is really tough yeah. because there is so much more to, to kind of OCD than what than what people think. Um, it's just not liking certain things and that is part of life. We all have our preferences. We have what we like, what we don't like. Mm. But it's what people don't understand is the, the obsession to an extreme level that it affects like daily life, I guess. So one of, one of the things for me is around education so education is really important to me and since I was little I've always had this wanting to be really clever that would be my superpower intelligence if I had that so I would obsess about needing to do something because it, it's going to make me look smarter right. um, and if I don't do that then I've got nothing else and it would take up a lot of my time so I'd spend time doing things even if I wasn't really particularly bothered about doing it maybe not having an interest in it but doing it because that what I'm doing is considered a something an intelligent person would do. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's often, you know, took time away from doing other things, spending time doing things that I probably actually would enjoy more, doing more, but that doesn't fit and that doesn't alleviate the anxiety of, you know, wanting to be, wanting to be this intelligent person. Um, so is it still quite, I guess, maybe the, the conception of, the sort of ritualistic behaviours is correct, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily just, you know, I've got to turn a light switch on and off sort of thing. Using, yeah, you know, so, like example. so obviously I can't talk talk for everyone. Because I've now lived with it for a long time and probably a little bit longer than I, than I probably think before the mm-hmm. diagnosis kind of thing, it's now there is things that I do that are part of my OCD that I just do and it's second nature to me. Yeah. And it's and it's that what I was talking about a little bit before about that journey about realizing what your what is your OCD even though because I just think well um, e- even down to stupid things that when I brush my teeth I brush my bottom jaw first and then then my top jaw and that is something that I do twice a day mm-hmm. every single day and I've never not done it because it's it's easy for me to do does that make sure. sense so there is that 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 ritual um, but not just in it doesn't necessarily like there is that side but then in terms of obsessions it doesn't all like for me it doesn't always manifest in behavior mm-hmm. so it can be obsessional thoughts all of the time about various different things some things that you've never even thought of before some of them can be quite scary at times mm-hmm. and in the OCD world there's a big thing going about that you want your OCD thoughts because like I said some of them can be quite scary and a bit different to a lot of people that they've never had before so when they have those thoughts, it's like, it's okay. That's that's not you. You're not a bad person for having those thoughts. So it is that kind of like obsessive compulsive disorder, the thought, the behavior, the kind of lesser anxiety stuff. Mm. But it is so much more than that as well. Like the rituals and just, just the thoughts on their own and various different things. And so you're like, correct me if I'm wrong. But is it, I'm just kind of trying to get an understanding of how it feels, but is it yeah. sort of, you have those behaviours or thoughts or whatever, and is it that performing those relieves the anxiety? Yeah. So for instance, so for, for me, another one is I have to have my laces on my shoes a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not necessarily just anxiety, but you think that 
today's not going to go well because all I'm going to be thinking about is the fact that my laces aren't okay. And often it kind of snowballs, so it might start as today's not going to be great. And then if something happens that kind of fits your agenda, it's like, well, this has happened because, you know, because that put you in a bad mood and you're in a bad mood and because you're in a bad mood, this has happened and it kind of snowballs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, a lot of the time it's, it's associated with that negative feeling. So it's often anxiety the majority of the time. Okay. But it can also just be that you you think something bad is going to happen or that the world is going to end or some someone's going to get hurt or you're going to, you know, various different things. But, but often I would say that it's more to do with anxiety. So you so you do a certain ritual, certain behaviour, whether it is switching the light off, or kind of whatever that is, that mm. my laces are okay, um, which is fine because when you when you when I look at my laces and my laces are okay, but the issue starts when, what about the next time, mm-hmm. and the next time after that? Yeah, it's it's never there is a little bit of when why people probably think that they have a little bit of OCD is say for instance I don't know they were doing a presentation and they had to do something or it, doing a certain thing made them feel less less scared or it, it helped them in some kind of way but then that is finished whereas yeah. someone with OCD that is often multiple times a day every day for every year of their lives which as you can imagine is quite mentally and emotionally tiring yeah no I was literally just gonna say that sounds incredibly tiring and I hope you don't mind me sort of I guess making assumptions here but it in a way and I think you know there's quite a lot of research to that there could be a link to me from what you're saying and you said about black and white thinking and sort of Mm -hmm. needing to know what's going on Mm -hmm. and then when you then went on to speak about sort of, I guess, having to perform a certain behaviour in order to feel like the day's going to go okay or something like that. And I'm talking completely from my perspective here of how I experienced my eating disorder. We obviously know that everybody is different. But for me, that's sort of how I felt with my eating disorder in that, Mm -hmm. you know, if I I had to know what we were going to be eating and uh, it was very black and white. Like if we don't have this, then I can't then have this. Or, you know, if mm-hmm. I don't exercise, what have you. Yeah. And then equally, you know, if I eat X, that's going to mean my day has fallen apart or mm-hmm. it, not even just eating, just, just generally if, if this thing doesn't happen. Yeah. So yeah. do you think there is a link? I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I, I... I really do think so. Um, obviously, when when I'm seeing service users at first steps at work, I don't when when I, to hear people talk, I can relate to their experience. Not not in terms of um, food necessarily, but in as you say that that obsessional thought, what, whatever that thought is, whether it's having to eat something instead of something else, whether it's about exercise, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that thought is, and then doing that which is the behaviour, mm-hmm. which reduces the anxiety, which is great. But what about the next mealtime? What yeah. about the next day that comes? Yeah, I I really do think that, that there is a link. And even if it's obviously not necessarily diagnosable OCD, but there is definitely a, an obsessive compulsive quality to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing that you've highlighted there is that and I think this sort of sometimes comes when people are like in, I think they call it like quasi-recovery in that mm-hmm. you could, yes, you could continue now and you could perform that behaviour that you think is going to relieve the anxiety and then you get on with your day. But yeah. what happens if you can't perform that behaviour? For whatever reason, mm-hmm. that's that's not going to be like a healthy relationship for you. You need to be able to yeah. find something positive that then allows you to get on with your day. So is that sort of how you've kind of lived with your OCD? Is it that you kind yeah. of have coping mechanisms for it? Yeah, I mean, obviously th- things things are a lot b- better now than, th- than they ever really have been. Um, but there's been times where I've decided not to, not to go out because there are certain things about my outfit that doesn't look right that I have to have a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, because to me the anxiety and the the obsessional thought that we spoke about is too high and especially more so when I was younger is that because 
I didn't really know anyone else with the same struggles as me. I was like, well, I can't really tell anyone Mm -hmm. because if I, like, in my head, I was like, if I tell someone that I can't go because my laces aren't, my laces don't look right, the majority of people are going to look at me thinking, like, like, are you okay? Yeah. So, yeah, it would, yeah. A lot of the time when I used to weigh things up, it was like, it almost wasn't worth the stress that it would put me under. Mm -hmm. Um, So not necessarily a healthy coping mechanism would just be to ignore it. Um, But it's about, for me, what really helped is kind of attacking those thoughts and constantly saying, okay, well, if this doesn't happen, what what is going to happen? And often the first answer would always be something that wasn't, you know, was very like um, an impulsive answer, I guess. Um, Okay, and then attacking the thought and just keep constantly trying to change up my own way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, And and that takes time because, like I said before, you think a certain way for such a long time to to kind of for someone say that's that's not actually right is like. Okay, well, this is this is a bit strange here. <laughs> so yeah, um, I think everyone has their own coping mechanisms with it, um, and it's about how you like ha- how you form them, and having the people around you to be like, okay, that's that's not healthy. Obviously, I had a really supportive um, friends and family, mm-hmm. um, and to to kind of talk me through it and and kind of educate me to educate myself, I guess. Yeah. Um, more so than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're so right. When you said about, you know, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but I read a book and it was basically saying that if you, and this really simplifies it, so it makes it sound okay. like, oh, it's such an easy <laughs> no, thing to do. Like... But if, when you're worrying about a situation of, you know, I don't want to go to this social event or mm-hmm. I don't want to do whatever trying to come to terms with the worst thing that could possibly happen so you know what is actually the worst thing about this situation and then the difficult part is actually coming to terms with that and accepting that that's going to happen but then what it it's basically trying to do is if you accept the worst thing that could happen that's pretty there's a really small chance that that's actually going to happen yeah so then whatever else happens it's better than the worst. Never, I, mean, I mean, to be honest, I think for me, you hit the, you kind of hit the nail on the head in how often I, I used to think because it was like, well, if you th- like, like you said, if you think about the worst thing and you prepare yourself for that, anything else, e- even if something bad does happen in that off chance that it does, it's like, well, at least, at least that other thing didn't happen. Yeah. No, so, so, so I totally get what you're saying, 100%. But I do think as well that you're right in... Um, when you said earlier about kind of, oh, I don't want to say that I don't want to go to this event because let's say my laces don't look right or whatever, mm-hmm. you feeling that shame in I can't say that to somebody. I think it's so difficult. But one thing that I'm trying to do, like I've not been, you know, my mental health at the moment hasn't been great. And I've not spoken to many mm-hmm. people about it because I I don't think I feel ashamed, but I almost don't want to admit it. But mm-hmm. I'm now coming to a point where I'm like, I have to. Because if I say, you know, I was meant to be going somewhere last night and I just text my friend like, oh, I, like, I made up an excuse. And then I thought, actually, no, I'm going to tell her what's going on. Because if I say I don't want to do it because of this then she or anybody else down a few months down the line may then feel comfortable as well. So I think you're so right. And by us being honest, it then allows other people to talk about the yeah. mental health as well. And I, th- I think following on from that as well is that there is a stereotype that people with mental health difficulties don't want to talk. But I've always been someone that I've always wanted to talk. Mm-hmm. I, I love sharing my story, talking about it and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's more about how and when, yeah, and 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 who who to talk to because Absolutely. it's often, especially being in often lad friendship groups. I wanted to tell all my friends because I don't want to have any secrets from the friends. Because as well, if something does happen, we don't necessarily have to talk about it because I, if they don't feel comfortable talking about it or they don't know what to say or mm-hmm. you know various different things, that that's okay. 
but I would rather people know because if something does happen or you know I'm doing something or 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 whatever then they are they are aware of the situation yeah um but I I always want to talk about it I just especially when I was younger um and, and and even now to a certain extent it's just I never knew how or what to say I wanted to tell people mm-hmm. but it's like how do you start that conversation I think that's that's a really important thing yeah. I think you've actually touched on we've had so many stigma debunking today but um I just want to say this one quickly is that when people want to talk like when people go to talk about their mental health whether it's to their friends family or a counsellor there's Mm -hmm. often this stigma that like like you said you don't want to talk about it and it's going to take Mm -hmm. a lot of energy to get out and I was talking about this with a friend the other day and that like sometimes because I have counselling and sometimes in the session I'm like maybe I need to play a bit hard to get like maybe I need to sort of (laughs) not be so keen to talk about it Because of that stigma that, oh, everyone with a mental health problem, like, they're really, like, yeah. closed off about it. And it's not true at all. Yeah. I know. I, I mean, I, I totally get it. And it just kind of goes, again, what we were talking about before, about each kind of mental health, people who suffer with their mental health have, like, are a certain type of person and a certain stereotype. But then you have so many little stereotypes yeah. in within that so like we were saying about only young girls have an eating disorder or anything and obviously when, when you type in OCD on on Google which I did a lot especially when I when I was a kid like when I was younger to kind of have that psychoeducation almost a lot of the cleaning stuff does come up so mm-hmm. I mean I can't like I wish I had a pound for every time that I doubted whether I do have OCD because yeah. and that's not um as like not what I'm experiencing isn't real it's like but it's not, it's not that. And mm. especially when you see it on TV and how it's portrayed in the media, like, especially when you're younger, you're like, well, that's obviously what it is. Because if I did have a pound, I would be a very rich man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Sam, it's been so lovely to speak to you. Okay. I you want to ask you, I normally have one question, but okay. uh, I've now added another, which okay. we've kind of covered today. Um, but I think just to have like a clear, concise answer from you would be really nice. Yeah. So the first one that's always been the question is what would be your top tip or best advice for somebody who's struggling from an eating disorder who does want to start seeking some support? My advice would be to firstly console in someone that, that, that you trust because like we've spoken about before, I think that speaking to potentially the wrong person can have a a bit a big impact and also i don't know a formal way of putting this but just kind of to forget the stigma and your feelings are very valid whatever your feelings are Mm -hmm. they are 100 percent valid whether they are the stereo stereotypical thing or totally out of the box yeah and no matter who you are and what you've done in life your your feelings matter 100 percent of the time yeah, and I think they tie really nicely together as well because not only do you need to forget the stigma, but the person that you're talking to also mm-hmm. does. And by yeah. talking to the right person that you do trust, they won't yeah. have that there. 100%. Um, and that doesn't have to be, you know, I think a lot of the time people are like, speak to, you know, your mum or your dad or whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that. It can be, you know, I have a friend that she went and spoke to her auntie because they're really close. Like, it's just yeah. somebody that you do trust that's going to be there for you. 100%. 100%. And then the other question, which okay. I think we've we've talked a lot about today, okay. um, but we need to kind of look outside of the box when we're detaching the stigma and stuff yeah. like that. So how do you think, you know, there's a lot of people having conversations and that is fantastic, but where do you think we need to go now in terms of reducing that stigma? The, uh, the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I think I, will, I, I always think that exposure is the one of the biggest things because we can have conversations you know like whether it's yourself with someone else but actually hearing the difference in in mental health as well not just you're you're a man with an with a mental health condition and you're a man with it like that can be totally different also i think especially within quite specific to ed services about how they i don't want to say i don't know whether the word appeal is the right thing but appeal to to guys because a lot of whether it's the research, whether it's the marketing strategy, whether it's, you know, even down to, you know, how they put this, like put themselves on social media mm-hmm. is normally a very feminine way of putting it. Yeah. So I think things like that 
is is kind of a step in the right direction. But like I said, we are getting better, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right though. I think it's it's appreciating the fact that, you know, for a a man to come forward as having an eating disorder, mm-hmm. that's gonna be really difficult. For a female to come forward and say that they have got an eating disorder might be really difficult. Of course, yeah. But I think there's like an extra hurdle to get over and we've got really got to appreciate that when we're talking yeah. about um, male mental health yeah I think especially because I always see it personally as two barriers so the first one is accepting that there is a problem is the Mm -hmm. first barrier because often as we've spoke about it manifests itself a little bit differently in men not not all of the time I must admit but sometimes it can do and then the second hurt like especially for a what people still see as a female only issue Um, and then the second hurdle because a lot of people will say I've got an issue here whether they label it an eating disorder or not, they know there's an issue, but then the second barrier is accepting help. And I don't know whether we attack one of those barriers first or together, I'm not entirely sure, but any kind of help in doing that is always is always a positive thing. And we are getting better. I'd no, like absolutely. And let's note. end on a positive note and yeah. say that we are, we are getting, We're there. getting there. It's getting just, there. yeah. Well, yeah. Sam, it's been absolutely lovely to chat That's to okay. you. Thank you very much for having me on. No, thank you so much, and I'll speak to you soon. You will do. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment, and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment, not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!